Uh, as most of you know, I wasn't supposed to be up here this morning, but uh, Court suffered an eye injury, and he's in a good deal of pain, and I know many of you have been praying for him, and please continue to pray. And uh, I was bouncing back and forth between two different sermons, and uh, I changed, and then I introduced the, the other one. So we are in Mark chapter 4. I promise you that's the right passage this time. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Father, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather in your name, to gather in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sinners like us, that we might be saved, took the blame in our place. And Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage that we'll look at this morning as we see the Lord Jesus demonstrating his great power. Father, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would indeed meet with us, that your Holy Spirit would be with me and with everyone in this room as we contemplate what you have for us today. Father, do be with court. Father, help him or to bring him quick and complete healing. And Father, comfort him now, even in his pain. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one fascinating aspect of human personality is the fact that some people enjoy being frightened. And not everyone, but many people do. Some people like to be frightened in their imagination. There are many books that have that ability to draw us in to a world where we can hardly bear to turn the next page for fear about what's going to happen next in that imaginary world. Now, movies, of course, take this to a whole new level of suspense, and it dem- they demonstrate the ability to make a whole theater full of people jump purely by something that they see projected on a screen. Other people live for frightening things in the physical world, Some love roller coasters. Others go skydiving. Some do bungee jumping or storm chasing. There's seemingly no end of opportunities for those who want to seek thrills. And people do these things because there's an exhilaration that goes with being frightened as our body responds to it and produces adrenaline and it kicks in and it gives you a rush of energy. But truth be told, these things really aren't all that frightening. If they were, people wouldn't choose to do them. And we can tell the difference between something that seems frightening but leaves us with some degree of control and that which is out of our control and genuinely terrifying. Now, sometimes those worlds come very close together, like the storm chaser who's been following a storm and all of a sudden that storm turns in their direction and they need to quickly get out of the path of that storm. But there's a distinct difference when we see something that is truly beyond us. And in those moments, we pass from exhilaration 
to utter terror. And no one wants to experience that. And sometimes we're frightened by one thing, only to learn, sometimes too late, that we should have feared something else. And that is the lesson of Jesus' disciples in this passage that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 4. So I want to read from Mark 4, starting in verse 35 and down through verse 41. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, I'll step back for a moment, set the context here. Uh, They're by the Sea of Galilee. And so the Lord Jesus is telling them, let's sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? We'll stop the reading there at the end of verse 41. So this morning from this passage, I want to see three things. Number one, a fierce storm. Then a faithless question. And finally, a frightening display. And then we'll make a little application after that. So first, a fierce storm. The incident in Mark 4 has parallel accounts both in Matthew 8 and Luke 8. But Mark's version is a bit more full in the details, which is interesting enough since Mark tends to be more compact. But in this case, he provides more details for us. But this passage also shows parallels to the Old Testament, to the account of the storm in the book of Jonah, and also to the description in Psalm 107 of God raising the storm and calming it, and the fear that that storm causes in the hearts of men. And it's likely that that Mark had these passages in mind, even as he was writing this narrative for us. Now, chapter 4 depicts for us a day in the life of the Lord Jesus. Verse 1 sets the scene. So Mark 4, verse 1, it says, He came, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a large, very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So, we're told already, Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee, There was a very large crowd of people who wanted to hear him. And because there were so many people, Jesus got into a boat and he speaks to the people on the shore from the boat. And we're told that he taught the people all day long, basically. And he always taught them in parables. Verses 33 and 34 tell us that. 
With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, as so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And there are several parables that we have recorded for us in Mark 4. We have the parable of the soils. We have the parable of the seed. We have the parable of the mustard seed. And undoubtedly, there is much, much more that Jesus said this day that is not recorded for us. These are just a representation of what he taught them over the course of that day. So by the time we get to verse 35, we have come to the end of this very long day, and Jesus tells the disciples to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus had taught the people much of that day from morning till evening. And by the way, he must have had extraordinary stamina to be able to do that. So he was undoubtedly tired, which I think is a key fact in the story. So we're told that they set sail with Jesus, quote, just as he was in verse 36, which likely means that they didn't go ashore first for anything. They simply weighed anchor and they picked up the sails and they went on their way across the sea. And we're told that Jesus laid down on a cushion in the back of the ship and he fell asleep. Now, perhaps that was below deck. Perhaps it was on, up on the deck. That's not clear to us. And as they were on the sea, a fierce storm struck. Now, storms are not unusual on the Sea of Galilee. Its mixture of topology and climate make the sudden occurrence of storms a very common event in that part of the world. But while storms are typical, this storm was not typical. And we're told in verse 37, it says, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the, wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. So we see that the wind was very strong. And the waves were so high that now they were starting to break over the top of the boat. And because of that, the boat was beginning to fill with water. Now, if you know anything about boats, you know that's a problem. <laughs> My children, they used to put boats in the bathtub when they were younger, and they would pour water in the boats, and what happens to the boat? Sinks, or capsizes, one or the other, but both are very bad things for the occupants of the boat. And that's where they were. And though I joke about that, this was a very real danger for these men. And understand that these men operating this boat were experienced sailors, but this storm frightened them. And they realized that their lives were in danger, and they had reached the point where they no longer knew what to do, because indeed it was a very fierce storm. Well, let's move on to the second point then, and that is a faithless question. So their precarious situation exposed the disciples' lack of faith, and that leads up to what amounts to a very unfortunate question. And again, I'll remind you that, that this wasn't a bunch of amateurs who had gone out here and gotten in over their heads. The men operating this boat were experienced sailors, and they knew what to do in a storm. But they also knew enough to understand that they were in serious trouble this night. 
And they realized that their lives were in danger, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. And they understood that the situation was spiraling out of their control. And so their very natural reaction was fear, real fear, not the kind of manufactured fear that you have when you're going up the first hill of a roller coaster and you're anticipating that first drop. But this was the kind of fear of the sort, I'm likely to die and there's nothing I can do about it. That's the kind of fear that these men were feeling. And I've never had that kind of fear, personally, and I really don't want to. Uh, But some of you may have, and you can identify with where the disciples were at this moment. And in this moment of great fear, they turned to Jesus. They're told in verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They looked around and they realized that Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the boat. Now that begs the question, how could Jesus sleep through such a storm? Well, he certainly was very tired. There is no question about that. But I think there's something much deeper here that we can draw out of this. The Lord Jesus had the peace of a clear conscience and utter confidence in the Father. And so he could sleep in even the worst of circumstances. So as amazing as this was that he was managing to sleep, it probably caused some degree of consternation on the part of the disciples. We're out here working, trying to save this ship, and he's laying there asleep. And so they go to Jesus, and they wake him, and they ask him a question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, while I called this a faithless question, they are not completely without faith. They came to Jesus with at least some idea that he could help them. Now, if we were to read the other accounts of this story, they all soften that question somewhat. But it's clear from Jesus' rebuke that they lacked significant faith in this situation. They were frightened, and they didn't know what to do. And they appear to have concluded from his sleep and his lack of action that he didn't care. They seem to imply a belief that he could do something but he was just a little too detached to actually do it. Now, lest we be too hard on the disciples, sometimes we say some very rash things under stress as well. But with those caveats, there could hardly have been a more unfortunate question they could have asked. It was unfortunate because nothing could have been further from the truth. Can you grasp the audacity of the question, accusing God himself of not caring? But how many times over the centuries has that accusation been lodged against God? Times without number. But let's make it more personal. How many times have you and I come to God and accused him of the same thing? Even if you didn't say it out loud, 
How many times have you thought it in your heart? Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing here? We need to understand something about faith. Faith is more than believing that God exists and he can do something. James tells us the demons believe that much. No, faith is, includes genuinely believing that God is for us. He is for his people. He's on our side. And he always does what is best. Always. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. See, I don't know about you, but I tend to not struggle with belief in God's ability. I believe that he's able. I tend to struggle that he's going to act in my best interest. And I suspect I'm not alone in that feeling. So they have asked Jesus a very unfortunate question. Of course he cared that they were perishing, infinitely more than they knew. They were worried about physically perishing in that sea. Jesus was concerned about so much more. You see, they should have been worried about perishing spiritually. They were afraid of the wrong thing, as they were soon to learn. We spend so much time worrying about this thing and that thing that's going on around us. And at the end of everything, there's only one question that really matters. Do you believe what God says? Do you believe him? You know, we can blame our feelings about God on this person or that thing or this event or whatever. But you know what? When it, at the end of everything, none of that matters. None of it matters. God has spoken to us. And the question is, do you believe what he says or not? That's what these disciples were wrestling with. Did Jesus care for them or not? And this is precisely why Jesus came, to rescue the perishing from sin and death. Not just rescuing a few men on a boat in a storm in the middle of a sea, but rescuing a world full of people who were dying in their sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What a precious and glorious truth. And their question demonstrated how little the disciples understood at this point. So they ask a faithless question. And after that question, their understanding is about to take a dramatic turn in a way that they never expected. And that brings us to a frightening display. Verse 39 tells us this. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. So here's the Lord Jesus sleeping on this cushion. And in response to such an insulting question, Jesus rose without a word. He stood up on the deck. Just think how patient and humble the Lord Jesus is. And this is really insulting. 
And yet he didn't respond in kind to these men. But he simply stands up, and he stands up on that deck, and he does something that the disciples will never forget the rest of their lives. He rebuked the wind and the sea. He said, hush, be stilled. The word there means to be quiet, to be muzzled, to stop moving. Something you might say to your child when they're getting a little bit unruly. The words themselves are not remarkable, but the result was very remarkable. The storm immediately ceased. The wind stopped and the sea became calm. And you've probably heard this before, but the reality is that the waves don't just stop at the end of the storm, do they? They continue to slosh for some period of time, but no. The storm stopped and the waves stopped. It became perfectly calm. This was an astonishing miracle, as is confirmed by the disciples' reaction to it. The maker of the universe exercised his divine imperative, and the earth obeyed instantly. The power to to do this is beyond imagination, and yet that is exactly what he did. And after he calms the sea, he responds to their question with with two heart-piercing questions of his own in verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Amazing. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their words to him. He rebukes their fear and lack of faith. When Jesus asks, why are you afraid? The word he uses means fearful or cowardly. Jesus directly ties their fear to their lack of faith. And thus, It was indeed cowardly. They feared the storm instead of fearing God, which means, in this case, reverencing him. They were afraid of what the world might do to them and failed to fear the maker of the world. Matthew Henry says, When they feared the winds and the seas, it was for want of the reverence they ought to have had for Christ. Now, applied in the question, why are you afraid, is another question. Of what or of whom should you be afraid? And while we're not told, we can imagine that after he asked these questions, Jesus quietly went away again and laid down on the cushion and went back to sleep, leaving the apostles and us to ponder the meaning of what just happened. So how did they react when they saw the full force of the divine nature of the Lord Jesus? How did the disciples respond? Well, we have it in verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They immediately recognized that Jesus was different from them, and they were terrified This stands in sharp contrast to their early cowardly fear. This is a completely appropriate reverence for the divine nature of God himself. This is the way everyone reacts, in fact, when they're faced with the divine nature. 
Isaiah 6. Isaiah was terrified. These same disciples were frightened of him after the great catch of fish in Luke 5 and on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus again showed plainly his divine nature. So the disciples had been afraid twice that evening. They were truly afraid of the storm. Now they were even more afraid of Jesus. They found themselves awestruck and absolutely terrified because they saw for just a moment a far less veiled glimpse of the glory of God. And they said to themselves, what manner of man is this? He looked like one of them, but it was abundantly clear he was not one of them. Psalm 107 tells us that the Lord raises the storm and the Lord makes it still again. And Jesus has now demonstrated beyond any doubt that he is God incarnate. As they came to grips with the reality that God incarnate stood in their presence, the fear came first and it was intense. But as the moments passed and they caught their breath, Somewhere must have come another question in their mind. Why? Why would God become a man and dwell among men? That must have seemed the most incongruous thing in the world. The God-man standing there on a boat in the presence of a bunch of nobody fishermen? It seemed incongruous because it was. It is. Why would he have anything to do with any of us? And yet, he didn't just show up and say hello and show us a few miracles. No, he came to die to redeem people like us. May we never lose the wonder of the question, why? What manner of man is this, and why would he die for me? Charles Wesley grappled with that when he penned the words, and can it be? And he said, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's a tremendous thought. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. They were not afraid of him earlier that day. They were not afraid of him the day before, but they're afraid of him now. Why? Had Jesus changed? No. Jesus hadn't changed. But their perspective of him had changed tremendously. While it is truly a fearful thing to come in the presence of God, his act of becoming Emmanuel, God with us, has opened a veil for us and made God approachable for us. And we are invited to come into his presence without fear. For while we are still keenly aware of our, of our own sinfulness, yet he has said to those who love him, I forgive you. You are my children. So there is no longer any need to fear. Jesus has always been God. They became afraid when they saw his glory. But his command is to not fear, but believe. He said the same thing to Jairus about his daughter when his daughter died. He said, don't fear. 
Just believe. And that's what he says to you and to me. Don't be afraid. Believe. All right, so what does this mean for us? Well, for those of us who know and serve the Lord Jesus, we live in the reality that the maker of the universe is on our side. God accomplishes his purposes in all things, including storms such as in the case of Jonah and as in the current case here in Mark 4. It not only demonstrates his power, but also accomplishes his sovereign will in the lives of men. The reality is that we may not be on a boat in a storm, but life brings many storms, doesn't it? And he is there, and he cares. The storm pales in insignificance to the light of Jesus' glory. But the reality is you may be in the middle of a storm right now, a storm that feels certain to overwhelm you at any moment. You believe that the Lord is there, but it's not clear that he's paying attention. It's not clear that he knows you're about to drown. You may even be tempted to think or to say out loud something very similar to what the disciples said. Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing? As Jesus did that day, he can speak the word and the storm in your life will cease to exist. And he may do that for you. Or he may, in his great wisdom and love, leave you in that storm for a very long time. Regardless of what he chooses to do, the answer is still the same. Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31, the Lord Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. If our Lord can stop the storm, there is nothing he cannot do, nothing he will not do for his children. And it may be tempting to think, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't know what I've walked through in my life, what I'm walking through right now. All the difficulties, all the bad things in my past, all the bad things that are going on right now, you can't understand. And you know what? Maybe I can't, but you know what? The Lord Jesus can. He knows it all better than you know it. And when you're, when you're, what you're saying sounds good, in theory, when you think, he, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, but he does because he's God, and more than God, he loves you. He loves you. We all have difficulties in this life, and some of us have lives that are more difficult than others. And you can't always know by looking on the outside what difficulties each person in this room is facing. But they're there. Every one of us has our own difficulties and challenges. And even if things seem good right now, the difficulties will come. Court didn't know he was going to get hit in the eye yesterday. But now he has this burden that he needs to bear for at least the next few days. Things like this happen. God never promises that the Christian life is going to be one of ease. But what he does promise 
is a life of eternity, of unspeakable blessing and peace. God has a purpose in it all. He makes it all work together for the good of his people. And how? How does he do that? He makes us more like Jesus by restoring bit by bit the image of God that was lost in the fall. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus silences the storms of life. He also silences the storm of judgment for his people. There's an old hymn that has a line in it. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He did that for his people. We will stand in the day of judgment if we belong to him because of him. Jesus is the calmer of the storm. But what about those who aren't sure that Jesus is the Son of God? What if you aren't even sure that God exists? Or you're pretty sure that God doesn't love you if he does exist? The Bible is clear. One day we will all stand before God as our judge. And if you can imagine how frightened the disciples were in the midst of that storm, and then how much more frightened they were when Jesus calmed that storm in their presence, that is just a hint of what standing before God at the final judgment will be like. Do you really think you will stand before a holy God and plead your innocence apart from Jesus Christ? Do you really think that you'll be able to explain that you didn't know he existed You just weren't quite sure about that. Look at the reaction of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Look at the reaction of the disciples in this passage. It is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of God. Why do you feel uncomfortable right now? It's because even this tiny little glimpse of God's holiness makes you realize you're undone before him. It exposes your son and your sin, and there is nothing you can do to hide it. But there's hope, blessed hope. The same one who rebuked the storm died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who put their faith in him. Don't turn away from him, because he will not turn away from you. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Christ and you will be saved. Repent today, because the writer to Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Jesus is asking these same questions to you, to all of us. Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Let's pray. Oh, Father,
What a great Lord and Savior we have in Jesus. It is beyond our comprehension. We're so wrapped up in the cares and concerns of this world. We so often see things happen and we don't know how how they're going to work, how they're going to turn out. But you know everything, the beginning from the end. Help us to believe not only that you are able, but that you will do exactly what we need when we need it, and it will be for our good and your glory. Help us to believe. And for any here who don't, Father, have mercy on them today and bring them to genuine faith in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.